Now it's time to talk with Yanis Varoufakis. He's the former finance minister of Greece who took office in 2015 after five years of debt crisis and economic and social decline had left half the country's young people unemployed. Greece at that point elected the most radical coalition to govern a European country in decades, and Yanis became a European-wide celebrity when he resisted the demands of Europe's bankers for austerity as Greece held out for restructuring its debt. But then the government submitted and Giannis left office. Now he has co-founded an international grassroots movement that is campaigning for the revival of democracy in Europe. He's taught for many years in the United States, Britain, and Australia, and he's currently professor of economics at the University of Athens. He's written many books, most recently, Adults in the Room, and Talking to My Daughter About the Economy, or How Capitalism Works and How It Fails. I spoke with him recently in Los Angeles. We all feel there's something the matter here, and most of us would say it's Donald Trump, but you say Trump is only a symptom. A symptom of what? A symptom of the failure of the liberal establishment after the major financial crisis of 2008 to reignite investment in good quality jobs across the West. Not just good quality jobs, but investment more generally in fixed capital, in things that actually produce stuff. That monumental failure resembles very much the failures of uh, global capitalism and US capitalism after 1929. But at least after 1929, soon after that, you had the New Deal in 1933. We haven't had the New Deal. What we have had instead is the refloating, very effective and brutal refloating of the financial sector through the quantitative easing programs of the various central banks, the money printing of the central banks, that created a semblance of stability and recovery without having created the investment in the things that make people feel that there is a future for them. You uh, met Obama. You talked to Obama. Tell us about that. It was a a very interesting conversation. Um, It began with him inviting me and inciting me to compromise in my dealings with the creditors. Uh, From a sympathetic perspective, he started by saying that I was right, that what we needed to do was indeed a debt restructure and the end of austerity. He himself, when we were elected, the day we were elected or the day after, came out with a a very helpful statement. He said that uh, enough austerity for Greece. Uh, you cannot keep squeezing a population like that. We were overjoyed to hear that. So he, he repeated that, but at the same time he said that he, he, that he thought we should compromise. And I responded by saying, Mr. President, I wake up in the morning and go to bed at night dreaming of compromise, <laughs> but I'm not going to be compromised on the one thing that matters, as you said, debt restructuring. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, and then he tried to, to, to bring me to his experience experience to say, look, when I got elected, I had to drink a glass of political poison by saving the Wall Street bankers. Not not something I wanted to do, but I had to do it. Effectively, he was saying, in the same way he compromised and that he felt helpless, I should also compromise and, and, and water down many of my aspirations. To which I responded and I said, 
But at least, Mr. President, you had your central bank backing you every step of the way. I did not challenge him. I didn't talk to him about reinstating Larry Summers and Tim Geithner, which I could have done, but it was not my job as a minister of finance of the most bankrupt country that was trying to elicit support from the most powerful politician in the world. Uh, and, and so I tried to flatter, them, flatter him by telling him the truth as well, that yes, you compromised and, and you had a lot of constraints you were working under, but you had the Fed backing you every step of the way, whereas I have a central bank that is trying to stab me in the back every step of the way. So I had this interesting conversation, and what transpired in that discussion behind closed doors was that the Obama administration had a very simple position. We were right. They would do nothing to help us because we belonged to the German sphere of influence when it came to finance and economic policy. But they would back us geopolitically um, in the, the, the sense of uh, uh, providing us with an umbrella within NATO in the instability of that part of the world, especially Ukraine, Turkey, Libya, Syria, and so on and so forth. So, effectively, they were washing their hands of us regarding the euro, regarding the relationship with the European Central Bank, as long as we remain within NATO, they wouldn't mind us getting out of the euro. They would not help us not to get out of the euro or get out of the euro, but they would make this clear distinction, American hegemony when it comes to geopolitics, German hegemony when it comes to finance. So Obama wouldn't challenge German hegemony, but Trump in the last couple of weeks has directly told Germany that if they don't abide, if they don't join in the new sanctions against Iran, the United States will institute a secondary boycott of German banks and industry. This give you any kind of uh, satisfaction? No, it doesn't. Trump is a smart man. We, you know, the, the, the Democrats in this country demonize him. He's a demon, but it's not right for the Democrats to, to paint him as a fool. He understands something that is absolutely pertinent. He understands that Germany is very vulnerable because it has a huge surplus, a trade surplus, to the United States and to the rest of the world. And if you have a huge trade surplus, you are susceptible to a trade war. And you've got a lot more to lose from a trade war than somebody who has a deficit. Now, of course, the... There may be a mutual disadvantage as a result of this trade war, but the relative costs are much greater for Germany. And he understands that. And he also wants to divide the Europeans. So he's hugging Macron and the French because of French. As Macron said very recently, they don't have a trade surplus with the United States. So they are not vulnerable the way that Germany is. So what Trump is doing is he's trying out a, a, poly, a, a tactic of shock and awe. Uh, he's trying to shock the Chinese and the, and the Germans, the surplus countries, into feeling completely uncertain and desperate in their dealings with him in order to, at some point, present them with the kind of deal that he wants to present them. The Iran affair has nothing to do with nuclear weapons. It's got nothing to do with, even with Israel. Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with peace or war in the Middle East, even though it will destabilize the Middle East. It is his way of rubbing Angela Merkel's nose in her own powerlessness. Mm -hmm. Angela Merkel came out and said that she was going to defend the Iran deal, and 
Europe will not pull away from it just because the United States is. But already, all the corporations, the German corporations that do business in Iran, have already announced, that, and for the French ones, that they're going to pull out because they do not want to lose access to the financial system of the United States and to, the, to, 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 to their business interests. In, uh, in, in America, there are 4,800 German companies doing business in, in, in the United States. So Trump has the carrot and the stick. The carrot is the tax cuts, the corporate tax cuts that he's given them. And the stick is, if you go to Iran, you're not getting them. And Merkel is a, a bystander. Sad, suddenly she feels the depth of her irrelevance. And Trump luxuriates in that. You are now setting out on a program, not just for Greece, but for all of Europe, focusing on 2025, the DM25 parties and movements. Tell us about that. Well, we, DiEM25, the Democracy in Europe movement, was inaugurated in February 2016 in Berlin for a very simple reason. And those of us who put it together uh, decided that what really matters is a, a pan-European answer to the European systemic crisis. We need a systematic European answer. Uh, that's something that has never been tried before. Hmm. But the European Commission, the European Parliament, they've all treated the Greek crisis as a Greek crisis, the Italian crisis, and that, never as a European crisis. Uh, so we, we created a pan-European movement. We have tens of thousands of members across Europe, uh, 100,000 members, which is not that much, but it's, it's significant. We have worked for two years to present our uh, economic policy framework, which, which we call the European New Deal. It's, I think it's a very uh, legitimate, moderate and useful document uh, that changes the policy discussion as to what needs to be done across Europe. Uh, and very recently, we made a very big, took a very important step. We decided that we're going to run in the May 2019 uh, European Parliament election. So we've gone into bed, so to speak, proverbially, with a number of movements and um, like-minded uh, political parties. And we create, DiEM25 has created a transnational political party, which has only been announced very recently. It's called the European Spring. Uh, so let me give you an example. It involves the Generation movement in France, led by Benoit Hamon, the French Greens, uh, RASM, a, a very progressive feminist political party in Poland, the Alternative, the third largest party in, in Denmark. We are setting up, we set up a new party in Greece, Mera 25, Mera means DiEM in Greek, to, to bring hope back to this devastated country. And I'm leading that party in Greece. In the next few days, we are setting up a new Italian party led by the mayor of Napoli, Luigi de Magistris. We have Livre in Portugal. Uh, we have other parties in Slovenia, in Croatia. This has never happened before. And what is exciting? Is, let me give you uh, just a snippet of that which excites us. Take, for instance, our political program in Greece. It has been voted by all our members across Europe. So you have Germans and French and Irish and British members of DiEM voting for the economic policies that a Greek party is going to pursue in Greece. And we were doing this in all jurisdictions. So it's a, the first proper transnational party, I think, in Europe, probably in the world. And we're going to run in May 2019 with a primary objective of changing the conversation. Tell us a little bit more about the program of this uh, European New Deal. For instance, how does it compare to what Bernie Sanders has been talking about? Brilliantly, it's along the same lines of thinking. We also have a very close connection uh, 
across the Atlantic because it is crucial that progressives in America and progressives in, in Europe coordinate our policies. In, in the United States, you have the privilege and the luxury of having institu federal institutions which can easily enact uh, another New Deal. In Europe, we have to simulate those institutions. And this, this has been the technically difficult aspect and what I think is the achievement of the M25 and the European New Deal proposals, how to take existing institutions that are very fragmented and they are not part of a federal system and make them behave as if they are part of a federation. Because unless they do this and we stabilize Europe, there will be no federation in Europe. We will have complete fragmentation and devastation. Well, good luck in 2019 and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. 